Positive Spark Plug Time, and I'm your host, Candice, and I am fired up for you guys today, for I have Jay Franz as my special guest, and we talk all about producing country music, and I am a huge, huge country fan, but if you're not a country fan, but you like music, which who doesn't, you will love to learn all about how to produce a song, how to produce a record, how to work with the top notches in the industry, and so much more. Jay and I also talk about his time being a professor in the school and how he learned all about leadership and how he works within his leadership roles, how mentorship is important, how teamwork is important, and how to be your best. This episode is truly fantastic, and I can't wait for you guys to listen, so let's get to it. Hello, Jay. How are you? Very good. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited to have you on the Positive Spark Plug podcast. Um, I'm excited to learn about you and your journey for um, I'm a huge fan of what you do for a living and uh, what you get to do is uh, I'm, I, I have a, I'm jealous. <laughs> I'm jealous. But I get I'm, I'm excited to live through you and through your journey. Um, I do want to just say thank you for, for reaching out and, and wanting to be a guest and sharing your value uh, through your country life journey and uh, I'm excited to, to learn all about it. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you for having me on the show. Um, to begin, um, I've started asking my guests, uh, what are your three favorite emojis or the three emojis that best describe you and why? All right. Um, I can tell you the one that I use the most often is the upside down smiley face. Okay. I feel like that's where most of my conversations lead me to. Um, other than that, you know, I'm not a big emoji person, but the upside down smiley face is really the one that I feel best describes me. That's awesome. Um, so, to to uh, to let my listeners know, you are a country producer, correct? Yeah, um, country music basically producing and engineering with a focus on mixing records. Wow. Um, before we get to that, I want to learn a little bit about you um, and what led you to this journey. Um, has country been uh, a part of your life, uh, like all of it, or did you kind of grow into country? No, that's a good question. No, I was born and raised in Boston. And in Boston, you pretty much had two styles of music. It was jazz or rock. And I grew up on the rock side. I played in rock bands growing up and was just heavily into rock music in general. And later, as I was graduating uh, from high school, I was telling my family that I wanted to go into audio engineering, into the music industry. And my father told me that he would support that, but only if I had a backup plan. And my backup plan was going to business school. So I did that. I went to business school. And then I went on to move or to engineering and then move, eventually move into Nashville. Oh, wow. So 
with um, your audio engineering, um, was it the sound of the country that brought you to more producing that kind of style um, instead of rock? Since you were into rock, um, what was it that drew you more into the, the country style? When I started, the three major music hubs were uh, New York, Nashville, and Los Angeles. So New York had more of that grungy, kind of a, it was a rock scene, but it was more punk style rock. And LA had the more glam style rock, and Nashville had more of a country style. And when I looked at the three places, I thought more of where I, where I would like to live. And Nashville seemed to be more affordable at the time for somebody who was young and starting out. So I decided to move to Nashville. And it was actually good for me because it was not just a, an affordable place to live and a nice place to live, but the industry ran in a more corporate manner. So it wasn't like when I, when I was in Boston, we were recording records at three in the morning. Oh, wow. So when I was in Nashville, everything works during the day. It's more of a, more of a business. So it allowed you to actually build and grow within it within the industry now did you move to uh nashville with anybody was uh anybody along your journey or was this a solo journey for you well when i first moved there i moved by myself and got into the it's funny i moved i moved to nashville by myself and i'm from boston but my family's from new york and when i got to nashville i met this guy who's from new york and went to school in boston Oh, okay. So we, we crossed paths a couple times. We ended up meeting in Nashville, and we ended up mixing a handful of records together, and we've been partners ever since. Wow. So how did you start getting your name out there? What were you doing? What were some of your strategies to to let the, the Nashville industry know that you were there? Because I... I've heard that it's not it's not the easiest. So how did you get yourself out there? What were some of the strategies? Sure, no. Being naive as I was at the time, I thought I would just move there, and I thought I had a piece of paper in my hand that said I was an audio engineer, and I'd go there, and they'd put me to work, and just like any other industry that I'd be working, and life would be good, but like you like you know that it's not like that, so what ended up happening is I went to Nashville, and it took a long time. I worked in that business for 25 plus years now, and... It took a long time to make it to the top where I actually got to work on records that people would know or hear and so forth. So um, during that time, I had to learn. I had to learn how to promote myself. When I, was, when I just got back from school, I started in Boston. And like I said, I started. I had a piece of paper and thought I was a shoo-in. So yeah. There were only two recording studios in Boston at the time, and they were right across the street from each other. So I went to the one... And during the day, they would record books on tape. So my job during the day was recording books on tape. And then I would go to the other one across the street, and I would record rock bands. And so I would work all night, and then I'd go back in the morning and record books on tape, go back at night and record rock bands. And I did that before moving to Nashville, and that kind of you know, allowed me to get my chops in order. And then when I moved to Nashville, I thought the same thing. I said, all right. I had a CD on my my kitchen table at the time, and it was a Shania Twain CD. And I said, all right, I'm going to move to Nashville. I'm going to go teach at the school down in Nashville. And I opened up the CD and looked at the name of the engineer, and I said, and I'm going to go work for, for this guy here, Bob Bullock. And 
I said, those are the two things I'm going to do. So I hopped in my car and I left and I got to Nashville and I started on that journey and I went to that school and I said, I want to teach here. And they looked at me and said, well, who are you and why do you think you can teach here? So I went through that battle and I, I was lucky that one of the teachers from the school I did go to was now teaching at that school. Okay. So, so he worked with me for about a year's time to, to get me into the school, and I finally got in and was able to become a teacher and work my way up to be the director of education at that college. And then what happens is when we're doing special, we bring in special guests for our, our students. And one day, Bob Bullock was a special guest, and I asked my students for help setting up the studio, so when he came in, and the students didn't want to help. They were busy doing other things, so I just did it myself. And I set it all up, and then when Bob came in and started working, he went, he did the, the seminar they came in to do, and students loved him, everything was great. And then when it was over, he asked me, and said, who set up the studio? Because it, it was, you know, just the way I like it. I told him I did it. And at that, right there at that moment, in time, right in the lobby of the college, he said, well, you want to be my second? And I said, yes, sir, I do. So I worked for him for roughly three years after that. Wow. That is amazing. Um, I, I want to dig a little deeper into that about um, the, the – did you – did you know the power of the words that you were using when you were saying, like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to teach at this school, I want to work for this person? Were you aware of that, or was that something that kind of, once you were in the in the midst of it, being like, oh, my God, wow, I'm actually doing this? Or was it, like, a power of, like, vision and, like, goals and stuff like that? What was, was it a mindset? Because it seemed like your belief was just, like, unstoppable. Like, you were just moving right through it. Well, at, at that time, I would like to say yes, absolutely. No, I knew exactly what I was doing. But, no, at that time, I was just young and cocky and thought that's the way it's going to work. And I went to Nashville and just tried to make it happen. And I, and I was just in the right places at the right time. But it wasn't just about being in the right places at the right time. Another thing that really helped was the positive attitude and being a little bit older than most people in those situations, that I was a little bit more self-aware of the things I was doing and saying. And that's really what um, led to that connection that I had with people. You know, Bob Bullock is, was a great mentor to me in that industry, and I still talk to him today. Really super nice guy. Um, but I'm probably much closer to his age than most of my students would ever be. So we were able to get along, and even though we're still, there's still a little bit of a gap there, but we were still able to get along as friends as well as, you know, some of the people who work together. Yeah, I was going to mention that. I was going to mention mentors because you you went in wanting to work for him. I was going to ask you, did he turn into more of a mentor? Um, and what were some of the lessons that you've learned for him that you have taken um, and, and used uh, throughout your life since working with him? No, that's a, a good question. Bob is uh, an amazing producer and an engineer, and he's worked on amazing albums. He did the last three Shania Twain albums, the last 11 George Strait albums. He's done um, 
things as far back as the monkeys. Uh, he was Kenny Rogers' producer, and he's done a, a ton of modern stuff as well with Kenny Chesney and other people. So, I mean, working for Bob was really my connection to Nashville itself in, in the realm of working on records that people would hear. And what I didn't realize at the time, coming from Boston and being in rock bands in the studio, I mean, we were in studios and it was dark and it was like a cave and we were just playing music and everybody was just relaxed and it was three o'clock in the morning. In Nashville, no. In Nashville, your session started at eight o'clock in the morning or six o'clock in the morning. You're running like a business and you've got to set up the night before and it's very structured and everything is done through a union for musicians and and it's done, like I said, very structured. But what you don't realize is how much money people are paying for the studio time, for the, each musician that comes in, for the people who have to carry their equipment to the studio and set it up for them, for the assistant engineer, the engineer, the second engineer. So, I mean, all of these things have very high price tags attached to them. So the one thing I learned and learned quick was you have to move fast. And if you don't move fast, you're not going to work in the industry. So you have to be able to get along with everybody. And it's just one big happy family, and you have to move fast because, like I said, if you don't move fast, you're you're in trouble. Oh, I like that. So with um, I want to go in deeper with the get along with everyone as kind of the the producer and stuff like that. How do you find the and the the um the tech back and stuff like? How do you find pushing somebody to to reach a little bit better because you know if they did this but keep that you know friendliness and stuff like that because people go in and whenever we do something we feel we're like we do we feel good about it right so sometimes it's hard to take corrective criticism so i guess my question is how do you how do you corrective criticism uh, criticize people, especially with high names, right? Like they're in the industry and they're like, people love me and they, they, they know that their stuff is good. How do you help these people reach a higher mindset, a little bit more potential? Well, I can tell you that everybody wants to be better. So if you legitimately give somebody a way of doing something better, they typically appreciate that. And in with the big stars and the, the big musicians, they work every day. They play on countless records. It's like the same group of people that play on every record that goes to Nashville. You know, there's only like five or six drummers and five or six guitar players that all play on all the same records. So okay. once you know them, you know them. And they're it's, it's like a family. They're very friendly. And, and when you're working with these people, they don't care. They, they can play. That's the one thing I noticed about the musicians in Nashville. They're the most talented musicians I've ever seen in my life. And even though there were people in Boston and New York and other studios I worked at that were talented, they were talented at what they did. The people in Nashville are talented at anything you want them to be. So I could go into Nashville and say, I want you to play this like that. And they will play it just like that. They won't, wow. you know, and if I say, can you tweak it and change it like this, they'll just make that tweak and change it. They'll do it on the spot, on the fly, like I said, with speed, because they want to continue working as well. And it's great. They, nobody has any qualms about, you know, taking advice. Now, 
for me, I didn't have to get too much into that because that wasn't my role in those sessions. That's more of Bob Bullock's role is guiding people and directing people. And I was working with him, so my advice would go to him. Hey, if we recorded with this microphone instead of that microphone, or what do you think if we use this piece instead of that piece? But when I was producing records on my own with, with a guy named Jim Cristaldi, that's the guy who's from New York, went to school at Berkeley in Boston and ended up in Nashville. So after we crossed paths quite a bit of times, we ended up meeting in Nashville, and I still work with him too. But with him, we were producing records for people that were not known, um, or at least not known at the time we were working on the records. Okay. And when we're giving them guidance, then we had a lot of say in the, in the matter. We can make a lot of suggestions, and we're the one subject matter expert at the time, and we're the ones that are trying to help them make a good record. And those are the people who are probably more fun to work with. They're a little bit harder to convince that you might need to go in a different direction. Oh, okay. I didn't know that there was uh, just kind of like a small group of mu musicians that kind of do all of all of the music. That's that's cool. I like that because, um, like you said, it, it does bring like the the family aspect. And when they go into the the sessions, they all know what to expect of each other and how to push each other. And like you said, take take advice from each other and stuff like that. It's not just some new person coming in and throwing suggestions around. It's it's a deeper, right? They know it's coming from love and stuff like that. That's awesome. Um, uh, I want to talk about um, what was, like, what was the audio engineering part that was so attractive to you? Because, and, and, and can you go a little bit deeper into it? Like, are you the person that's in, like, tweaking those little knobbies and, and pushing up and down those buttons and stuff like that? Is, is that your job? That, that is exactly my job. Yes, it's all the, it's when you look, walk into a recording studio, you see that giant console that looks like you're, you're going into NASA. <laughs> I, I'm the person who's responsible for manipulating that console to either bring music into a recording system or take it out and mix it down to a record. And so that's definitely what I do. And what drove me to that point was very simple. I love playing music, I love playing in rock bands, but I do not have the talents to be a musician like these guys do. So my talents was more on understanding the equipment and understanding the math behind things and truly becoming a expert, for lack of better words, at manipulating the, the equipment. So if you came in and told me, hey, I want my record to sound more yellow, I could figure out what that meant and tweak the knobs to make your record sound more yellow. And it, okay. I say that as a joke, but I can't tell you how many people communicate in terms of color in the recording studio. I want oh. more yellow or more blue, or can you make that a little bit more red? Uh, do you feel is do you take that as kind of like a mood or, that they're looking for within within their music and their sound? I and that's, that's kind exactly of yeah, like that's exactly a, so that's cool. That is so cool. Um, when <laughs> I, I, I want to ask you, when somebody first gave you a color, like, hey, I want that to be what, what was your like reaction? <laughs> it was like, you're a lunatic, I have no idea what you're talking about, I don't want to know what you're talking about. Um, we're drug free zone here, please. You know, I don't know, I don't know what you mean by that. And that's, and 
it happened more and more, and I was like, okay, maybe these people are thinking about something that I'm not aware of. But yes, hap- uh, yellow is happy, red is angry, blue is, you know, somewhere sad in the middle. I don't know. That is so cool. So after your your years working with Bob, what was what was your desire to transition? Was there another opportunity that you were given? Did you decide that you just wanted to go adventure out on your own? What was that like for you? It's a transition um, away from working from them, but staying in the industry. Yes. Yeah. So when I was teaching at the college. I I was still making records and doing things on my own and working with that producer named Jim Cristaldi. And then there was Bob Bullock, and there was also one other guy named Matt McClure. So I worked with three of them. And it was funny because working with the three of them, I got to work on three different levels of projects. Okay. So with Jim, we worked on independent artists that were hoping to make it big one day. With Matt, we were working on songwriters who were writing hit songs that haven't been recorded yet and we got to work with the you know session singers and session musicians that we would record these songs that would then eventually go to these professional um, singers and they would put them on their records and with Bob Bullock we were taking those songs and we were putting them on the records with these professional musicians and singers so all all three different stages that's so cool so were you um what was it like working with the 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 musicians that were like in hopes of becoming big one day um especially with working with already kind of big stars how did you transition and what were some of the advices that you gave to these to these young artists that were looking for success within the industry Sure. Oh, I mean, those were, like I said, those were the projects that were more fun. More fun for multiple reasons. More fun because we had a smaller budget. We had to do things in a more innovative way and be more creative with what we were doing. Um, When we hire a studio, we hired studios that were a little bit more, that reminded me more of Boston, where they're a little bit of the more bass mini style studios and not quite as glamorous. Uh, and then we hired the same musicians in, in Nashville. I mentioned they were union musicians, which had three different tiers of race. So you have your demo rate, your um, record rates, and master record race. Okay. So depending on how many albums you thought you were going to sell. So, so when I was working with the independent artists, we were doing the smaller size records, the demo style records, but it was more fun. We got to be more creative. We got to go in there and hire the musicians we wanted to work with. We got to record in the studios that we thought were best and use the equipment we thought were best. We got to, you know, craft and help develop the artists. And uh, there was a couple artists through that time that really stand out to me that just were you know, great to work with, great projects. We involved every one of our friends to work on some part of the, the record. What makes what makes a project fun, and what makes someone fun to work with? Because I'm I'm sure not everyone's a great cup of tea to be to be working with. So, what is something that makes a great artist to be a part of and and enjoy working with, and wanting to be like, yeah, I want to produce with them again. Oh yeah, no. Um, I think 
like I said, independent artists for the most part were more fun because they weren't as stressed out and stuff as the bigger artists. You know, they still had their day jobs. They were still trying to make their way into the industry. They were just excited to be there. And they, you know, where the more known artists were more concerned. So, you know, this is album number three or four. Will it be as successful as the other albums? Will my record label drop me? You know, they had, you know, we're going on tour next week. We got to finish this vocal today. There was a lot more things that came into recording records with them. So how would you, how would you help get one of those big, like the, the stars that are more in concern and in and, and fear of are making this hit the best one? Because you're producing and if maybe you're, you've already produced their last hits, how do you help them feel safe within knowing that you've got them, right? Like you've got their production, you've got their producing and you, you're going to help it be a hit. Um, how do you elevate some of their fear? When you're working on those projects, there's a lot of people working on it. So you get a room of, say, eight musicians out sitting in a room together. You have a, a producer and you have an engineer, you have a second engineer, you have an assistant engineer. So it's a large group of people working together. And the key thing is to just try to keep things stress-free. So in my role, my role is where, like, say, when I was working for Bob. Bob's role is to be creative and to give directions to the people where my role is to make everything seem seamless. So, for example, if you're singing a song and I notice your microphone is maybe not working right or maybe you're, you're having trouble with it and you're not comfortable, my job to notice that and maybe replace the microphone and maybe find a way to make it feel more comfortable and before it becomes an issue. Um, sorry about that. My dog, my dog started barking. <laughs> um, so within, um, within your production and, uh, working with so many people, um, and, and sticking with what, uh, you know, your job is, is, and, and working seamlessly and keeping things moving smoothly. Um, how does, um, leadership get into into play within working with so many people and how do you um, how do you like how do you keep in in line with everybody and, and lead and also you know be led sure oh, um, I think for me it started when I was teaching at the college because that's something I never thought I would do I never thought I'd be a teacher at a college I never went to school for teaching I never thought that was going to be something for me but when I was working in the industry, I did once. Like I, I was in the industry for about 16 years before I started teaching at that college, and I went there with the intent to do it. And 
once I started doing it, and once I started working at the school and working my way up, it wasn't the teaching, even though that, that was definitely fun. But it wasn't the actual teaching of the classes. Well, what was going on in between classes? Where students would come up to me and ask me for advice. They would ask me to help them get an internship. They would ask to go sit in on some of my sessions. And how did I do this or how did I do that? And that to me was more fun. And I didn't think of it as leadership at the time. I didn't even think of it as mentorship at the time. I was probably just happy that people wanted to know, you know, how to do something or have me show them how to do something. Yeah. So I would help people get some of these internships. I would help people, you know, get some jobs in the industry and do all that stuff. And then later, when I had the opportunity to start truly mentoring people and helping people, I jumped right on it. That's, that's really been the more rewarding part of everything. What are um, what are some of the key factors to to really truly leading? I think the biggest thing is listening, right? So you listen to people. You, you don't just listen to for your opportunity to speak. You listen for active purposes to find out what they're truly saying and you find out ways you can truly help them. Because a lot of times they don't know themselves, and when they're talking to you and they're looking for advice or they may come to you just to share something, there might be something much deeper to it. And that's what we need to find out. What is that deeper cause and what can we do to support correct? And how, once, once you've done listening, how are some of the ways that you, you would help somebody course correct? Well, I, again, it's a case-by-case basis, but I, I like to think of coaching is I'm not the one it depends are you when people come to me I always ask them are you looking to be coached or are you looking to be um, consulted because if I'm going to come in as a consultant I'm going to come in and tell you the way that I think it's going to work best if I'm coming in as a coach I'm going to help you try to figure out how to make it work best for you so there's that slight difference but it really means something and I do get brought in as a subject matter expert on certain things and that's what my expectation is but if i'm being brought in to just help guide the process then that's something different i mean let's just think of it as if you were a singer and you came to me and said how do i make a record and i would say okay this is step one this is step two and this is what you do and you press this button and you do this and if but if you came to me and said i want to make a record then i'd say okay so tell me what it is you want. Tell me what it is you, when you say you want to make a record, tell me what that means to you. And we'd walk you through the process and you know, find out from point A to point B if that's what you really intended to do. Did, did um, working with yourself in, in this state of intention and going to Nashville for certain things and desires did that help does that help you with your coaching and helping people get to really know their inner selves and and their why for what they're doing yes no absolutely and i think the reason behind that is because it took so long and the music industry is so hard most people go into that industry and they leave within the first couple years because they just don't know how to break into it it takes and so if I didn't start when I did, I probably would have never lasted. Because I started at a point where I didn't have anybody relying on me. I didn't have anything that I needed to pay for. 
So I was able to just get the cheapest apartment, and I was willing to work all odd hours and do everything like that. And it took that type of mentality at the time to, to stay long enough to be able to succeed. And I think those lessons that I learned through that time, I have now taken and applied to other industries and other areas, and I've been able to succeed in other, other industries much faster than I ever would have been able to if I didn't have that background from the entertainment industry. How did you, speaking of like mindset, how did you handle your, your first no when you got to Nashville? Did you go in knowing that you were going to get a handful of no's? Or like you said, you were naive, but did you have that somewhat of an understanding? Or how was it for you when someone was just like, no? Well, I am an Italian from Boston. So I say that quite a lot these days because they're both hard-headed people, and they, they're both loud and obnoxious, and took, you know, years of being married for my wife to break that. Um, but no, so I didn't think anybody would ever say no to me. But I can tell you a quick story of the first real meeting I ever had in Nashville that really set, set the record straight. Uh, I had a connection that hooked me up with the, the president of Sony Records, and I went to his office and met him in the lobby. I was all excited and I put on my suit because in Boston, uh, this is something I learned quickly too, in Boston everybody wears suits and ties, and, uh, not in a recording studio, but just in general in, in a corporate environment. So I put on my suit and tie and I went to the lobby and I asked for the gentleman and they called him and came down to the lobby and shook my hand and it was all nice and and then we get in the elevator, and the first thing he says to me is, don't ever come here in a suit and tie again. He says, we wear khakis and polo shirts here in Nashville. <laughs> so I was like, okay, lesson number one. Yeah. Lesson number two is he's, he's like, okay, now what do you want from me? I said, I don't, I'm not looking, I'm not wanting anything from you. Well, you obviously want something. You're here, you want a job, or you want to work, or you want to do this thing. I told him my background and everything, and he said, well, nothing I can do for you. So what I can do is I'll invite you to some industry parties where you can start meeting people. So that was my first, you know, foot-in-the-door type of situation. Wow. But, but I learned real quickly, like I said, Boston, <laughs> you know, suit and ties when you're in a corporate environment, Nashville, khakis and a polo, and in Silicon Valley in that area, um, it's whatever, whatever you want. It's more hoodies <laughs> and jeans. <laughs> so it sounds like throughout your story, there's really been um, a, a sense of power of connection. And I want to get into that because it seems like it's not like you've just been in the right place at the right time and setting right intentions, but you've also been really fostering powerful connections and allowing yourself the opportunity to, to you know, connect with people. Can you talk about to, about that? And was that a lesson that you learned or was that something that you knew you were having to do was like get into Nashville and just meet as many people as you could? At the time, I didn't think like that. I, I definitely think like that now. I mean, that's my most important tool right now is connections and networking and so forth. But at the time, I didn't think, I wasn't thinking like that. I didn't think that you had to make connections. I didn't think, you know, when, networking well that's for business people 
I wasn't thinking about that in the audio industry. But no, it was definitely like that. It's a who you know business. And even that uh, even that moment at the record label was who I knew. I met, got to meet the president of the record label, and he invited me to parties I never would have gone to. Um, I got to work with the Grammy Foundation, and I was a voting member of the Grammys, and got to go to parties I would have never got to go to. I worked on records where I got to even, I did mention that one, the one producer, uh, Matt McClure, that was the middle guy recording uh, songwriters at the time. If one of those songs, you know, got sold or hit number one, I got to go to number one parties. And so I got to do, you know, do all those things. So I got to meet people. And then when I started meeting people, that's when you start getting phone calls. Hey, can we do this or can we do that? And I didn't realize it because, you know, where I was from, I was still young enough to not network and not know those things. Now, how, within, within learning networking and stuff, how did you start to learn, to, how to learn the power of networking and not just kind of being in there naive and taking everybody's advice or just jumping on everybody's projects? How did you start to learn kind of what you're looking for and, and what you're wanting to produce and like who you would kind of want to work with? Sure. No, at the beginning, you said you jump into anything you can get your hands on just because you want to be working. But as time goes on, you start to be a little bit more selective and you start to work with people where you know that you're going to have the opportunity to get to know them. And that one guy, Jim, we became best friends and we want to work together and, you know, we hang out after a session and sit around and discuss what we can do next and, you know, how do we, what's, how do we get that artist over there? Or how do we get this song sold to this person over there? And we started to be more strategic with our thought process where when I worked for Matt, he was, he was very strategic with what he was doing, and I was good friends with him, but my relationship with him is more friendly and helping him reach his goals. And Bob Bullock, I became friendly with him, and my relationship was, with him was, you know, make records, but I was there to help him and help him succeed, and that's what I did with him. So it's the different styles of relationships with the different people. But it wasn't until I worked at that college, and that college taught me more than I probably taught students, because when I first got there, I was just like anybody else. I was you know, nervous and concerned. I had to go teach a class, and you know, I thought to myself, why are these people even going to listen to me? Because I don't have a degree in teaching. I don't have a, you know, the yep. type of background that they want. I have no qualifications for being here. Um, at the time, I didn't realize 16 years of making records was the qualification. So what I did is I wrote a book. And I wrote the book not for the hopes of selling the book, but for the hopes of showing my students that I had some knowledge that they could actually learn from. And the book ended up being somewhat successful. And it was successful enough that when I used to go to some recording studios in town, I would see the book on, on the bookshelf. And so that was always a good feeling, and that got me a little bit more credibility and got me into some more circles that I may not have been in before. And I think that's where I started learning more about branding and networking and marketing yourself. And, you know, I had a, a great website and great tools and built all the stuff that I needed. I think that's where I stood out compared to the rest of the engineers at the time. I think everybody's doing it now. Everybody has websites and everything. At the time, I had all the tools that most people weren't using. 
Yeah. So how how did you how did you utilize within your your fear to understand that you know your 16 years of background um, was the certification and because I believe that we as humans we don't we don't necessarily take on all that we've actually accomplished and what we've done. So was that something that you were you were taught or was it like, you know what, no, I, I'm I'm doing this because of I know my background. Like was it a for like a, a a journey through the fear or was it kind of like a shown to you like, hey, look at you've got this because of your background? No, I didn't I didn't think of it at all. I I just get up there and started teaching. And I guess standing in front of a, a class of young students I was able to have enough of a presence that I could control the class my concern was having them believe I had anything to say and I think that developed over time once once they started realizing you know because the students aren't dumb especially once the internet started taking off there's certain you know google google and their teachers and stuff and they start to find out the projects that I worked on and the things I was involved in and then they'd start asking questions about it, you know, just find out just how, how true is this. You know, yeah. what did you actually do? Were you getting coffee or were you actually making the record? <laughs> so then when they start to see some of that experience, and that's when they start feeling comfortable enough to, oh, okay, maybe we can learn something here. And, you know, and then especially when people like Bob Bullock come in and offer me a job, and, and I'm working around town with Bob Bullock doing sessions while I'm teaching at the school. And, I think all those things lend to the credibility. Credibility. What were some, I want to, I want to, you were mentioning some of the lessons that you learned and you mentioned some of them, but what were some of the other takeaways from, from teaching that uh, you utilize within your career? Patience. Um, at the time I didn't have any, but like I said, now that I've gone through that teaching period and now that I'm married and I have kids, I try to be much more patient. Um, and owning your own mistakes. If you make a mistake, just who cares? You know, who cares if you make a mistake? You're going to do it. If you had all the right intentions, then we can pass it. If you didn't, then we have a different different conversation to have. But, but I think owning your mistakes and moving forward and trying to get through things or somebody else has a mistake and you try to help them get through it I think that's what it's all about yes I like that I like that um within uh, you mentioned your wife and I just want to dive into just a little bit of like where did you meet her was it out of one of those parties is she in your industry is she in a completely different industry um how did you two meet uh, good question um my wife I met her in the industry when I was working for or with Jim Crisaldi. The two of us were making records, and the company at the time had a publishing arm and uh, art department and all these different um, avenues that tied into the same products. And my wife was doing the photography and graphic arts for the records. Cool. So she did all the, the photos and the artwork to make the records. and. We were told at the beginning that we were not allowed to date because we both worked in the same company, and it was a no-no, so we didn't do it, and as time went on, even Jim turned to me and said, hey, 
Why don't you guys just start dating already? <laughs> so we started dating, and I got the, the, the pleasure of firing my wife. Oh! <laughs> ah, how did that go? <laughs> She's lazy. She doesn't like to work anyway. <laughs> Was it because you guys started dating that you got to... <laughs> Did she know it was coming? Yes. yes. Yeah. Said, yeah. Hey, if, if we're gonna do this, this is what's gonna happen. So what did what did she do? Did she just like I know you said she doesn't like to work, but did she go and find another opportunity to to work, or were you guys in the starting a family? Was oh, like how? No. At, at the time, she was definitely more successful than I was. She she was working. Um, she was the head graphic artist for Xerox, and she was doing major, major projects for people, and she was doing other album covers around town, and when she came to work at um, this organization that we were working for, you know, it was great. We were l lucky to have her, but, you know, she had no problem saying, okay, yeah, bye. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, I want to I wanna go into um, meeting, like, famous people because that's extremely exciting well for me especially people that don't get to meet these people on a daily basis so i want to i want to know about what was your first experience meeting somebody with such a high profile were you like nervous were you excited did you really know any country singers at the time or were you just like oh hey this is brad paisley nice to meet you <laughs> Brad like, oh Paisley's Paisley a very nice guy. I never had the opportunity to work with him, but I, I did attend one of the events that he was hosting and got to sit with him for a little while. Um, I, like I said, I've met everybody, and I don't say that to brag. I say that because I worked in the industry. The industry's small, and I've met probably all of them at, least, you know, at one point or another. What I can tell you is some of them are very, very nice. Some of them not so much. They're just people like anybody else. I've seen some of them do some really nice things. I've seen some of them do some things that I was like, oh, man, you shouldn't have done that. So, like I said, people just like anybody else, I won't you know, tell you any of the negative ones, uh, but I can tell you there's a lot of positives. And when I, and for, luckily for me, I don't get starstruck. I don't care you know, what you do. Or I was, more, I was more starstruck by working for Bob Bullock than I was the artists that were in the, the room. Because to me, he was my rock star. You know, he was the one that was on the record label or on the um, record jackets that I was looking at when I wanted to get into business. Because like a guitar player looks up to other guitar players, I was an engineer and I looked up to him. Yeah. So it wasn't the artist that made me excited. But um, I get before I left Boston, I did a couple of events with Aerosmith, and they were super, super nice. Um, so I got to talk to them uh, on more than one occasion, the band Boston, um, so that was back, like I said, I'm old, so that was back when I was living in Boston. But in Nashville, the, the best people I met, um, Eric Church was as nice as can be. I met him right after I had my, right after I had my baby, he had his baby, uh, both of our first babies, and... And he was asking me questions like I was a professional. <laughs> I finally had to look at him and say, dude, look, at, I'm here with you. My wife is home with the baby. I don't know the answers to these questions you're asking me. Look, these are questions for her. So, yeah, I mean, but he was super nice. Um, the guitar player for Rascal Flass was very nice, uh, Joe Don Rooney. 
took me to lead the band Journey backstage one night. And I'm just a super nice guy. Um, very friendly. Got to hang out with him and his family. It was on his birthday. Uh, we went to the, the Nashville Arena where the Predators play. And, and was, um, Journey was playing. And so it was Joe Don Rooney's birthday. So we were up in the skybox watching the band play. And he told me he was going to go go and be right back. And I asked him if he wanted me to walk with him because he's not one to walk around by himself because he's a mob. Yeah. Um, but he said, no, no, stay here and, you know, sit with my wife and make sure the family's okay. So I sat there with him. And his wife brought me some birthday cake and we sat there and sock and next thing you know he's out on the stage playing with the band for their encore song that's, that's why he walked away he didn't want to tell me so then after the show was over he took me backstage and introduced me to everybody which that was exciting because journey was my favorite band growing up i don't no. care about joe don i just hear about journey <laughs> wow that is so amazing i want to talk about like i you, you said niceness and like there's there's got to be a humbleness that comes with people that especially, you know, get such a high profile and are recognized and stuff like that. How does that play an effect with you and, and deciding, like, who you just, who you want to work with and stuff like that? And, and what was it like for you to give your first no to somebody that wanted to reach out and work with you? Well, I think being humble is the name of the game. Uh, when I started, even working with Jim, it was like, okay, we're going to be the best. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And then when I started working with all the best, I was like, okay, we can't do this. we got to do it like this. And, and I started working with some of those musicians, and um, one guitar player that, that uh, just comes to mind is a guy named Jeff King. And he's a session guitar player in Nashville, and you would never know it. I mean, he looks like a lumberjack. But he's a session guitar player, and, which means he, he makes his living by playing guitar in a studio. But he's also uh, Reba McIntyre's touring guitar player, so he goes on the road with Reba. And he's just the nicest guy in the world, and you know, as friendly as can be, and humble, and you ask him to do something, like, okay. And it's just one of those, one of those experiences. And I learned from people like that when I left. You know, you learn from the people you surround yourself with. So Bob Bullock was very soft-spoken, just very nice guy. Chef King was just friendly and joking and laughing all the time. You know, his talent spoke for itself. You didn't have to wonder if he could do the job. And so I took that, and that's what I grew from. It's funny, I didn't never had a, a formal mentor. Um, Bob's probably the closest thing to it. I didn't have a formal mentor, so what I did is I learned from the people I was around, and I didn't just learn the right things, I learned the wrong things. So if I saw somebody say or do the wrong thing, I said, ooh, no, I don't want to do that. You know, or, ooh, that was a bad move. Um, but if I saw somebody do the right thing, oh, wow, look how well that went over. Hmm, maybe I could do that. Especially when you're in the studio with some of these bigger musicians, because that's what the up-and-coming people want, is that big, big musician experience. Yeah. So, so if I was in a session with Bob and I saw, okay, you know, when he's talking to the guitar player, he's talking like this, or when he's talking to the artist, he's doing this. So then I, I learned from that, and I took that and applied it to the projects that I was lucky enough to run. That's awesome. That's awesome. When when you're deciding, um, 
like to work with somebody i do want to know what was, was were you nervous have you ever said no to to working with somebody big or small and what was that like for you like setting boundaries with within your your career and what you're looking for in production and producing sure no i've um i've had a, to say no a couple times and i try not to because i'm a hired gun just like anybody else but with that said being an engineer is a creative position as well. And when you're mixing a record, people want somebody to mix a good record. And the saying goes, you're only as good as the last thing you've done. And I've learned that even in the corporate world. So you want to make sure that you're working on good things so that way the next big thing, somebody's going to say, ooh, he worked on that project, let's get him. Yep. But at the same time, you're a hired gun. Somebody's hiring you to push buttons because they don't know how to do it. So I started realizing, what are you hiring me for? Okay. If you're hiring me to produce and, and make a record for you, then that's where we have to be, is this the right thing for me? But if you're hiring me to push the big red button because you don't know where it is and when to do it, then fine. I'll continue to do that. I'll do that all day. You know, I'll, I'll manipulate all the faders and you know, knobs and stuff like that because that's that's just a craft. It's what I've learned and what you're paying me to do. But if you want me to produce a record, then, okay, well, what kind of record do you want me to produce? Want me to produce death metal? Because I might not be the guy to do it. Yes. Country record? Okay, maybe. Let me produce a rock record, sure. But, you know, hip-hop? I wouldn't know the first thing about doing I've mixed a few hip-hop records. But oh, okay. I, I would not um, would not be the guy to go ahead and record it. I wouldn't know what I was doing. <laughs> how do you um, how uh, within within all that you're doing? Because you still work with these people, but you, you do you have your own like production now, and they just kind of come in and work, or are you still like working with them, just doing something different? You said you worked. You were working with them for about three years. What are you doing now? Is it your own thing? Because I see that you have branding and stuff, and I want to talk about that. Yes. Thank you to the yeah. wife. Yeah. So, like, how did you like? How did you like start to branch out to your like yourself? All right. Um, I was doing projects on my own before I moved to Nashville. When I moved yeah. to Nashville, I realized I am not doing real projects. So that's when I started working for other people and learning what they were doing. Um, then, as I was working with Jim, I got to do projects on my own, and it was fun, and then I continued doing projects. But I still work with Jim to this day. He still produces countless records in Nashville, and, he, and I still get to mix the ones that are a little bit more special to them. So when they have one that they think is uh, you know, something they could sell or something that an artist wants for a record, then I get to mix it for Um, I want to ask, can you name some of, like, the songs that you have produced that are, like, hits? I can name some of the ones I got a chance to work on. Um, in the rock world, I got to do two of Dave Matthews' records. Um, I was one of many engineers on the projects. Uh, I was one of the mastering engineers. Mastering engineers are the people who put the final touches on a record. Okay. And so as far as rock bands, um, I was an engineer on one of the uh, projects.
Project for Chicago. Um, trying to think if there's any other contracts that I'm not thinking of at the moment. I got to do a couple projects that Boston Globe did an article on me one time because I got to do this real big projects for Jerry Lee Lewis, Dolly Parton, Johnny Cash, um, and a handful of others like that from that era. Um, this was really, really cool. It was a fun experience. A producer out of Los Angeles stumbled upon all these old recordings and they needed somebody to, to clean them up and you know, master them all up. And I did that. And it was fun. Um, and then, as far as country artists go, you know, Rascal Flatts just got to help out on, on one of their records. Um, when I worked with Matt McClure, we did um, Lee Bryce, was a big one. Um, I'm sure there was others. I just can't remember which ones there were for him. I got to work. The very first project I did when I got to Nashville was Phil Vassar. Keith Urban. Oh, those are the yeah. first two things I did when I moved. I moved to Nashville and I got to do them on my own. And they were big things, and I didn't even know who they were. So <laughs> but if, if I did, I probably would have been a little bit more nervous. Yeah. I was just going to say that did that help you not really, you know, Obviously, you, you might have heard, hey, you're going to be working with Keith Urban, and you might have done a little research or whatever, or maybe you didn't, but was did that help you with your production, not like not having to worry about what it was like before, or what is this? You just got to go in and show yourself? Go and do it. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know who you are, but let's go out and make a record. Nice. Um, but no, that was fun. I, those two were live shows, so that was pretty cool. What? Um, and then there's other people that I would have liked to have worked with or there's projects that I didn't work on because I didn't think I could do it justice. Uh, for example, uh, a couple, couple nights ago I did an interview with a guy named David Ray and he was one of the founding members of the band Vaughn Ray. And I would have loved to have worked on one of their records and I never got the opportunity. Uh, but I would have loved to and I told him the other night I was always a big fan of his music him and his brother um, um, got Vaughn Ray and David Ray and they were in the band Vaughn Ray yep um, so I, I would have loved to have got to, to work on one of their records and mix it but they actually used one of my idols to mix their records so I can completely understand that so <laughs> that, but back in that day that was in Orlando and at the time it was Vaughn uh, Ray, Matchbox 20, Seven Mary 3, and Sister Hazel, and bands like that that were there. And I had an opportunity to, to do some stuff with Matchbox 20, and right before they changed their name to Matchbox 20. Um, and I, I turned it down because I didn't think I should add anything or do anything. And, and I'm, I'm glad I did because their first record turned out great. And I'm kick myself because man I wish I could have been part of some of that stuff I was just gonna say I was just gonna ask you how do you how do you know the difference between like pushing yourself to you know you know beyond your limits and like let's try this let's get adventurous and you know 
no, I don't, I, I don't think I can, like you said, I can't do this justice. How do you know yourself? And is it a battle every time that kind of comes up? Because like you said, if it comes out and it's great and you're like, man, I wish I was a part of that. But like you said, you don't regret not doing it. So how was it in the moments of deciding and the mindset of that? That's not an easy thing. Like you said, if you're going in naive and you're like, everyone wants me, like, yeah, I'll do it. How do you, how do you know to juggle? No, that's a, another good question because I'll, I'll tell you at the time I could have been cocky and I could have said, oh yeah, no, I can do that. Let's do it. And think if it comes out like crap, no one's going to care anyway, but, yeah. um, but no, I think when, when you've had the ability to work around people who you know are better than you and you can see what level you belong on and it's hard to to admit you don't belong on a certain level but once you realize it like i know when i first moved to nashville i was not on the level of bob bullock he's just fantastic i'm just not on that level i don't have that experience i mean 30 plus years of recording or probably 50 plus years at this point of recording these big records and i never had any of that experience you know, I have I have that experience now, but at the time I didn't. And I, I wouldn't have been able to, you know, if somebody came to me and said, hey, Kenny Chesney wants you to do his next record. I would have been like, uh, I don't know what to do. <laughs> so understanding that, and, you know, okay, well, I'd rather go be the second for Bob Bullock and let him produce that record or engineer that record and, and learn from him. And then that way, once you start learning and then you start seeing work out there or listening to other people's records and go, mm, no, they probably could have done it better like this or if they had done this. And once you start hearing things and thinking, yeah, no, they made the wrong decision there, that's when you start realizing, okay, now I, I, I'm not afraid to take on that project because I feel like my decisions are better. Whether they are or not is another story. But when you yeah. start, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've heard a record and thought, oh my God, they, you know, bad mic placement, or, you know, they mix this in the wrong way, or this is too loud, or this is too soft, or they could have made this move a little bit better. And, and once you start thinking like that, that's when, you, when you're ready to go out and do your own stuff. So it's kind of, it's, it's like, it sounds like a build of self-belief. You got to know where you're, where you're at in your level. And it's not that you don't think you can't do it. or You just know that it's not right now. Right. It's just not the time. Yeah. Um, so how do you, how do you turn down? Because when you're working and you have these big opportunities come to you and stuff, was there a bit of fear of saying like, no, I can't do this because I'm, I don't feel adequate enough that you might not get other opportunities? Or did you think, like, if I'm honest, he's going to take it as it is and other opportunities are going to come? If I had those opportunities when I first started, I probably would have thought that. But because they came later, what I would do is, uh, let's say, for example, if you were a singer and you came to me maybe at one of the parties I was lucky enough to attend, whether... Sony parties or something, and one of the artists came to me and said, hey, you know what, oh, you're an engineer, let's go ahead and record this record. I would, I would instantly gauge what level you were at to provide what level I should be providing you. So if you came to me and you, and you had a record deal with Sony and you really wanted me to put a record together for you, I would instantly hop on the phone with Bob and say, hey, Bob, I get this artist here who wants us to do X, Y, and Z. 
and I would use Bob as my my talent. And I would say, okay, Bob, here's an artist that is suited for you, and I'm just happy to be here for the ride. Yeah. That way I can say, you know what, I, I work for this producer in town, and he's awesome, and let me bring you over there, and he's done this, 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 and this, and you probably already know who he is. And that's what I would do in that situation. Otherwise, if you came to me and said, you know what, I'm a songwriter, and I had a few hit songs, and now I want to become an artist, but... No, nobody has faith in me yet or nobody thinks I'm capable of it. And then I would just turn to Jim and I'd say, hey, you got this song right here. It was amazing. And it looks like she's on the, the cusp of making it. You know, maybe we can put a record together for it. Then we would do it like that. So. How do you get, um, do you get that often when you go out? Do you have people always asking like, hey, I have this, I have this audio, I have this song. And how do you like cipher what what you think is going to be a, a good hit or what you think uh, this the, mm, this isn't for me? Like, how do you decipher that? The joke in Nashville is everybody is a songwriter, and it was funny to me because <laughs> when I got my very first apartment, the young lady who was walking me around showing me the apartments told me, "Oh yeah, no, I'm a songwriter." Myself. You're a songwriter and you're showing me apartments. But then I would go to a <laughs> restaurant and you're a songwriter and you're bringing me my food, or you're a songwriter and you're doing this. And it was true. Everybody was a songwriter. And even people with big hits were, you know, real estate agents or whatever else. So that was really cool. I mean, and I laughed, but my real estate agent was actually a songwriter who had some big hits. So. Yeah, everybody's a songwriter, and you don't know which ones are big, which ones aren't, or which ones will be big, so you treat everybody with respect, and you, you know, everybody's got a dream. My dream was to make records, and that when I started, they were horrible, so I could only imagine what somebody was saying about me. But, what was, have you had anybody just kind of come out and, like, start singing one of their songs? Like, how, how was... What's one of the, like, the funniest ways somebody's brought to you, like, their music? Because, like you said, people want to stand out, and everybody's a songwriter. And how, do, how, how are some of the ways that people have brought their music to you? That's a, a funny question. Um, I could tell you, people used to send me demo tapes on platters of food. Like, you would get a platter of cold cuts, one of the round trays of cold cuts and in between each section of cold cuts was a, a CD. So, yeah. um, I had somebody send a, a refrigerator box filled with those styrofoam popcorn things and okay. they tied a string across the center of the box that held the CD. So you open the box and the peanuts fall everywhere and then all you're left looking at is the CD. Oh. I mean, just crazy stuff. But I'm lucky enough. I wasn't that guy. I wasn't the one you had to try to please. You know, that only happened to me a few times. The people, you know, when they're sending, we're more likely the people sending you the crap than you sending to us. So. I wonder what someone was thinking when they're like, hey, let's stuff a whole bunch of peanuts in here so that they fall over their person's floor. Not a, not a good experience. <laughs> they really it want my it, it, it would be funny but I was like ah 
Now do I really? Now I have to clean this up and besides listen to you. Yeah. I have to call these peanuts before listening to your, <laughs> your CD or your album that you sent to me. That's hilarious. Um, so do you get, like you said, you've done a couple uh, recordings live. Does that happen often? Like, do you get to go on tour or is it more just for you on, um, like, in the, in the recording studios? Uh, for me, I'm 100% in the studio. And these days, I'm almost 99% just mixing records. I don't record them anymore. I, I very occasionally will record a record, but... Um, and I de definitely don't do live shows anymore. Um, I've had some fun. I did the Wilkinsons and a few other cool artists like that. But I did have a chance to go on on the road a couple times. Nothing major. Uh, but Matt McClure was a road engineer for a while before he was a producer. And it's hard to make that transition from being on the road to being in a studio. People look at you. Once you're a road guy, they think you're a road guy. But we went on the road with Steve Holy. And he had a number one hit for a little while. And and get to go on the road for, for just like a week, I think it was. But it was fun. It was a good experience. You know, ride around on the tour bus and uh, meet everybody and, and set up in these, you know, stadium-sized you know, places and form and stuff. It was, it was pretty cool. Nice. Uh, but no, not, not my thing. I'm not a live person. You like being in this suit. So, um, you, can you go over, because like the recording is, like, is it happening while it's mixing? Like, can you go into a little bit more detail? Like, how does, like, what is mixing of the tape? Like, is it when it's at the very end, you're putting tweaks into it, you're putting stuff into adding audio? What is sure. the, what, it, what, what's, what are all the, the, the tools? And, yeah, yeah, the different steps to, to song. You know, well, most projects, and I'll, I'll stick in the country genre for the moment, well, most projects have one producer and the producer is the guy who makes all the decisions guy or girl or whoever it is they get to make all the decisions and those decisions are usually like what musicians do we hire what studios are we going to record at where are we going to spend this money what's more important to spend the money on should we spend it on quality musicians or quality studios should we find the balance of both what are we doing so that's the role of the producer and they're also the ones if they're talented as well, they can also say, you know what, you're singing that note's a little flat. Or, you know, guitar player, can you play your acoustic guitar on this song instead of your electric guitar? And can you use this tone instead of that tone? So that's the role of the producer. And I've had a handful of records that I've had that opportunity to do, and probably uh, at least two of them are my two favorite records I've ever worked on. So I did enjoy doing that. But then the recording engineer is the one who presses the big red button when the musicians are sitting in the room. So in Nashville, they still record live. So you put a band of five, eight people out in the room, and you give them a thing of sheet music. They sit in the Nashville number system in Nashville, basically music. And they sit out there, and when you press the, the big red button and say go, they start playing the song. Okay. And, and usually in just a few minutes, you have a finished version of the song. And it's recorded onto a digital medium these days in something we call Pro Tools. And um, so that's the person who records it. Then you have an overdub engineer who is the person who records all the stuff after the initial recording of the band. So if we said, you know what, it'd be nice to have a, a 
different guitar solo here, you'd bring in another guitar player, or you want to have the singer sing now, and that's an overdub, and then you want to have the background singer sing, and that's an overdub. So you have the person who recorded it, and the person who records the overdubs, and then you have the person who edits everything. Usually the assistants will go through and edit it and take out any dead air or mistakes, or if the guitar player may have bumped the music stand, you try to take that out at all possible. So just whatever noises and anomalies you might find, you take out and clean it up a little bit. And then you have the mix engineer who takes all of that stuff that was recorded. And so you might have, you know, say 64 different tracks. And that's where you see those 64 faders on those big consoles. Okay. So you got, say, 64 different pieces of information coming in. Your vocal is one, maybe three or four background vocals, maybe five or six guitars and bass guitar. Your drum kit might be broken down into 12 different microphones. So that mix engineer takes all of that and then sweetens it by making every piece sound as good as possible. Like I'll make your vocal sound as really as good as possible, use the right effects, the right reverbs, um, maybe the right EQ for the guitars, the bass guitar, the drums. And then you blend all of that down to a two-track recording. And then you take that two-track recording and you give it to a mastering engineer. And the mastering engineer takes that two-track recording and prepares it to be put out onto a CD or a digital release system. Oh, wow. That is so cool. That is so neat. That is so neat. So when you, oh, I want to, when you're working with, like, your music and stuff like that, how did you, I want to go back, like, way into, like, teaching. So you wanted to go to school and stuff. How was it, like, working with your first projects? Were you given, um... Like, were you given songs to just play with, or were you given, like, a band, like, in your in your schooling to learn how you do what you do? Um, how, like, how did you learn all that? Like, was it just, here's some songs, do what you can with it, I want to learn, or was it, like, here's live bands? Sure. No, when I first learned, um, there was only one school at the time, and that was a school in Ohio. It was called the Recording Workshop, and it was a very short program. It was only a, a, month, a month or two long. And you got to go live in a cabin in the middle of some woods in Ohio. Oh! And it was fun. They I don't know how they did it, but they brought in all sorts of bands. And, you know, from Columbus, I think it was. They'd bring in rock bands, and you would record them. And then and they had all the previous recordings all on shelves there, and then you could mix them whenever you wanted. So I did that and really enjoyed the mixing side of it. And the reason I think I like mixing versus recording or doing live shows is because I always liked having something I could show off when I was done. You can't show off a live show when you're done. You know, as soon as the show's over, it's over. Yes. You know, but when you finish a record, I can hand you a record and say, listen to this. And I put it on repeat for you know, countless hours and drive my wife through. <laughs> Um, I wanna I wanna ask you what are some of like your proudest uh, recordings that you that you have done that when you're like here's your here's your here's your CD like you're like here's your CD like <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, there was the, my two that stand out for the I mean out of all the countless big projects I ever had a chance to work on the two things that stick out to me the most were independent artists. And when I was working with Jim Crisaldi, and those were Maddie McCree, uh, 
she had a record called Closer to More, and there was a girl named Tristan Burke, um, who has a record called Upside Down. Okay. And those two records are by far my two favorite records I've ever produced, worked on, done anything with, and they were amazing songwriters, amazing singers, uh, just great products, and I get to... I got to pick the studios I wanted to go to. I got to pick the musicians I wanted to work with. And I got to do all that stuff. And I had say in um, how it was done. Jim and I produced it together. So we could sit there and, and Jim played the guitar and all the instruments, uh, a lot of the instruments on the records. And she's by far the best guitar player I've ever met in my life. So working with those people are good. And then another one, which is funny to me, I did a, a, a demo, it was just a three-song demo for a girl from Ohio, but I did it when I owned a recording studio in New York. Okay. And this was years ago. And now, um, she called me, you know, maybe a, a year ago, and she's a coach now, a life coach, wanted some advice. And she ended up now, she's one of the guests on my show, I mean, one of the co-hosts on my show. But I, I produced a record for her years ago, I mean, years ago, that three-song demo, and it's still one of my favorites to this day, and now I get to work with her again. Oh, that's so cool. I want to I wanna flip the question. What were some of the, the projects that you've handed in where once it's done, yeah, it might have done good and stuff, but in your heart, you were like, yeah, I could have... I I could have done better. Like the artist is like, I love it. They, they, you know, it gets done. It's CDs. It's out and stuff like that. But you know, in your heart, you're like, I I know I could have done better on those projects. No, everything in Nashville, especially, is done on time. How quickly can you get something done? And I became a very fast mix engineer because I know things have to be done quickly. Now, if you allow me more time. I can be more creative, and I can go ahead and do more. So there's a lot of songs that we submitted to publishing companies. You're submitting songs to publishing companies in hopes that the publishing company likes it enough to have one of their artists record it. So if you say you want to write a song for Tim McGraw, you send it to this publishing company, and hopefully the publishing company says, yes, we like this, and then they try to shop it to Tim to see if he likes it, and then if he does, and then he records it. It's a very simplistic way of looking at it, but that's essentially what it is. So when you're working with publishing companies and you're trying to record their songs for them, they're called demos. When you're putting those demos together, they, they want it quick because they want to sell it. Because they want to get it out. They believe in it so much. Oh, this is the best thing ever. I've got to get in front of so-and-so. He needs it by tomorrow night. Yep. You hear every excuse under the sun of why it has to be. You know, it took you six years to write this song, but now that it, you wrote it, it's got to be recorded yesterday. <laughs> so, but if you allow for just a little more time, we could be a little bit more creative, and we can probably sweeten it up a little bit better. Because there's not a there is not a project that I've ever worked on where I've heard it. You have to be perfect. I'm not going to touch another thing. I might think so at the moment. But now, five years later, if I played in the car, you know, one day I'm saying, oh, God, why did I do that? You know, or oh, I could have done this. <laughs> so, yeah, even even on those, now, Maddie's and Tristan's record, the ones that I had total control over. Yep. My favorite records whatsoever I've ever worked on, and I love them. But, man, you have to get more money, we could have done this, or we could have chosen a different microphone, or, or things that nobody else cares about. Nobody gives a shit. Nobody 
you're gonna think, oh my god, he didn't use a $20,000 microphone. No, well, for this record I didn't. For this record we used this microphone because there was no $20,000 microphone in the suit. Yeah, yeah. How, I want to dive into the learning aspect. How important was it for you to to have an open mind to, to learn and grow within your industry and, and learning to connect and and prosper opportunities that are around and also learn to not take certain opportunities that come to you. Sure, no, um, I think that's just something that comes with the territory. You have to you have to learn and take it one at a time until, until you figure it out. But um, I, I would try not to discount any opportunity. And like I said, I've mixed records that I didn't think were right for me. And if I truly think something isn't right for me, say if somebody comes to me with a hip hop record or something, I would turn to somebody I know that does hip hop music and say, hey, you're more suited to do this. Um, but if I know it's just for a demo sake and it's not going to be a record, then maybe I'll try it to see if I can see what I can do for it. It's not like um, I can't make it sound that way. It's just I'm not, uh, I might not be the fastest person at doing that because I have to try something new. Yeah. Um, for anybody that is looking to to get into your industry, that is looking to um, strive to work in any kind of type of music, um, what are some advice for those people? Because I know it's not an easy industry, whether you're the singer trying to become singing or you're the producer. What are some of the tips or strategies that you would give somebody that is, you know, wanting to move to Nashville like you? Well, the industry is constantly evolving, so you have to be extremely strategic and you have to be very innovative. So always finding a new way of doing something. That's by far the most important thing. And then you have to have the drive and desire and passion to stick to it. So if you think if you think you're just gonna try this, it's not gonna work. You have to want it has to be in your blood. You have to you know you're not gonna be able to sleep tonight unless you build it. So if you have that kind of passion, drive and desire, you're most likely gonna stick it out and then if you stick it out, it doesn't matter how good you are, if you stick it out, you're gonna make it. You just have to stick it out and I've been in the industry for between 25 and 30 years now. Uh, I started in 1987, so whatever that math was. And yeah. if, you, if you do that, it took me 15 years before I got to do anything that anybody cared about. So 15 years of beating down the door and doing every side job I could take. My wife used to laugh at me because even when I met my wife, I was doing four jobs. I was working for three different producers and whatever else I could I could take on. Wow. Wow. I was teaching at the college, working for Jim, was working for Matt, was working for Bob. Um, and if she came to me and said, hey, you know, what are you doing this weekend? If I had nothing to do, I'd paint your house. I don't care. <laughs> um, I just have a couple more questions for you. Um, what are um, some of the next projects that you would like to work on? Is there any is there any 
artists that you haven't worked with that you would like to work with? Um, is there artists that you would like to work with again? Um, what's what's next for you in, in your in your career? Um, well, I continue to work with Jim. And like I mentioned, Jim is by far the most talented musician I've ever met. And I enjoy working on any project he has because um, he gives me total freedom to do whatever I want. And he's just amazing. So he's just amazing, and he doesn't like the engineering side of it. He's a talented musician. He knows how to produce records. So whenever I step in, he seems to be happy. Nice. Um, so in that manner, that's the, how I like to work. And as far as mixing records goes, yeah, there's a few people that I really like to work with. But the people like um, like David Ray, when I was talking to him the other night, I would love to mix that, that record. The record that they released, I would love to just, doesn't have to be to release it, just give it to me. Let me mix it for myself and see what I could do. Okay. Because to me, that's if it's just amazing music, amazing people, and I think I could I could do justice to that record now. May not have been able to do justice to it then, but I could do justice to it now. Yeah. What did he say when? Because you said you mentioned it to him. What did he say? Did like would you ask him if you would if you could just play around with it to see what it would be like? Would you ask him that? I'm sure that belongs to a record label that would not allow that to happen, but. Um, Oh, yeah, I guess, I guess, yes. but, no, I mean, David's a great guy, and, you know, he's, he, his son is extremely talented and a musician now, he's, he's still young, but he's really, really talented, and Dave started to put together a home studio where he can record his kid and do all these things, and so I might have the opportunity to work with Dave in the future, help him give him some advice on running some other work. Nice. That's exciting. Exciting. Um, is there any, I know um, you said working with Jim, but is there, uh, do you guys like get the songs before the artists or do you know like only once the artists come in what you're going to be producing? It just depends on what we're being hired for. For example, okay. Jim is a songwriter and he's written thousands of songs. And if it's something he's written, then we just go ahead and go in the studio and do it. If it's uh, he also works with hundreds and hundreds of songwriters. So if somebody comes to him, he'll they usually come to him with lyrics. He turns it into a song. And okay. I turn it into a record, and then they take that record and chop it around and see if they can sell it. Yeah. Do you get? I know you. You. Do you get a voice in like who you think might sound good in a song? Since you are friends with Jim and he writes songs, like like, hey, that song sounds good. I think that maybe this person would would rock that song. Yeah, with Jim, I have I have those kind of that kind of input. With Bob, I would not have any. Even if I had, I could say it, but it yeah. doesn't mean they're gonna listen. To me. Yeah. Nice. Close enough friends with Bob that I can make make a suggestion like that, and he may take it, he may not. And Jim, I'm I'm close enough. I can just tell him they do be dumbass not to do it. This person, oh, that's so cool. I like that. Um, my, I just have a couple last questions for you. Where can my listeners find you? Find any of your products, any of your music, you in general, um, and then I'm gonna ask you my last question. Sure. Um, jfranzi.com is the easiest way. J-Y-F-R-A-N-Z-E. That is the easiest way to find me. It has links to every social media account out there. I think I'm on every platform you should be on. 
and you can go there you can learn about what i'm doing now what books i've written things like that you can find about find out about my show i run a leadership podcast and radio show and we also have uh, links to all of my music projects check out the discography and the the credit section find out what artists and you you truly want to go listen to anything and if you're a musician and you want help just reach out and i'd be more than happy to help you or at least guide you away awesome my final question for you um before i i ask it i just want to say thank you again for what you're doing thank you for bringing joy and love and laughter and 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 just emotion to the world with with what you do in in your career because it truly does make the world a better place it brings for that connection so thank you for what you're doing thank you for joining me on the podcast i truly do appreciate it my final question for you is what is your perspective on positivity it's horrible it's the worst thing that i've ever seen <laughs> no um i am obviously i am the most positive person that i know of, and i laugh about with my wife all the time because i say she's the most negative person i know um she she is she thinks of everything in the worst possible ways hey this let's go do this if we did that this might happen where i wake up i mean i jump out of bed in the morning i'm ready and raring to go yeah i'm never worried about negativity in any way and now that i'm working with mindy uh we are putting together our next book and she like i said is a co-host on the show and she is a positivity coach. So, uh, I don't think there's any way around being positive these days. And Keith Sensing is the other host of the show. There's three of us. And Keith is probably the most negative person. Okay. So, you got Keith being negative, Mindy being positive, and I'm just right there in the middle. Happy all the time, steady, don't get happy. Don't get too happy, don't get too mad. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Um, you have a great rest of your day. Um, we will be in touch. Uh, I appreciate you and all that you are doing. Thank you very much. Tell me you didn't like that episode. If you like music, you must have liked that episode. And if you guys did, please let us know by tagging us on the socials, on Instagram, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, at Candace Axford, at Spark Club Wellness, for uh, Instagram, for uh, LinkedIn and for Facebook and at J friends for all three for the him. Let us know also by rating and reviewing the podcast. It truly does let me get the value of my guest out to more listeners and lets me know that I'm on the right track to providing you guys value. And it just makes my heart melt. And I love you guys so very much. And I appreciate you guys for doing it. And I appreciate you guys listening. And it is now time to go out and do something positive and be positive. <laughs>